Alright, good morning church. Good morning. A reading from Exodus chapter 4 verse 10 through 23. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my God, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow to speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with you, your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send somebody else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he, uh, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, uh, with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, uh, to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, uh, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on the donkey and went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The word of the Lord. It's helpful to be able to hear somebody else read to know how uh, how things are projecting there. So I know that you can hear me. Will you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you. That they would equip us for the work that you have called us to, that we would hear your voice and say, Lord, send me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, I was involved with the Navigator ministry, and part of that ministry that was a, a, a great blessing was to go overseas occasionally. About every three or four years, our, uh, our campus would take an overseas trip in the summer for a few weeks to meet up with some other missionaries and, and to do 
to, to just come alongside of them. Of course, you can't have the full experience of what it is to be a missionary overseas just by being there for a few weeks. But you can experience something of another culture. You can see the beauty of Jesus' church and how it is not limited to this time and place. That it is, is for all the nations. And you see the beauty of the diversity of the church and, and all those things. But one thing from that trip really stands out to me. And that was when our team of about 12 students and uh, a couple of staff members were on a bus to some place. I don't even remember where. But I do remember that it was a place where they didn't speak English very much. And so we were on this bus and my mentor, Dave, was faithful to plan out all kinds of things. And we were sitting toward the back of the bus and he wasn't quite sure what, what stop we needed to go get off on. And he, he was needing to attend to something else. And so he, he tasked me, he said, go and ask the bus driver what stop we're coming up to. And I was nervous because I didn't speak probably Russian or uh, or some similar language from places that we had been very well. And I was afraid and I hesitated. I said, I don't, I don't want to go up and ask. It was send somebody else to go ask the bus driver. And it was the only time that I can remember that Dave got angry. And he said, you need to go ask the bus driver what stop we're coming up to. And I was really mad at the time. I thought that was uncalled for. And maybe he overreacted a little bit there and all of us at times overreact in our, our responses, but it was still necessary because if we missed our stop, it meant that we had to go a long way out of the way and it would affect 12 people and other schedules that we needed to keep. And he just needed somebody to go do the task now. The anger was justified. As we look through the book of Moses, or the book of uh, Exodus that tells the story of Moses. We don't see God getting angry often. But he definitely gets angry on occasion. And when he gets angry, it's reason to take notice because it's something important. Chapters 3 and 4 tell this story of God calling Moses. We said he, he appeared in this burning bush that, that didn't get consumed. And Moses turned aside from his task and took the time to go over to it. And, and he has this extended dialogue back and forth. And, and God calls him and says he's going to give him this task. And Moses objects five times, beginning with questions interrogating God. Who am I that you would send me? Who are you? If people ask who you are, why would you send me? Why will the people listen to me? Now we get to the last two of his objections and he's, he's not asking questions anymore. Now he's just saying, you've picked the wrong man. I'm not very eloquent of speech. And a lot of people go on and on about what was the problem. Did he have a speech impediment or, 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 or was he just making excuses or was there something else? We, we have no idea what, he, what, what he's referring to here ultimately. But we do see how God responds to him. 
He says, I will be with your mouth. And he even shows grace when Moses finally says, I don't want to go. Just send somebody else. And the text in our English translations is a little bit more abrupt. Moses is using a little bit more softer language in the, in the original Hebrew, but it's still the same effect. He's kind of hemming and hawing and saying, if there's any way to send somebody else, please send somebody else. And, and God, he gets angry. But what does he do? He says, I'm going to send not just you off with my voice with you. I'm going to have you team up with your brother, Aaron, who you know. You know that he knows how to speak well. I'm going to give you a tangible sign of my presence and accommodates to Moses' weakness. Now, a typical way to approach this passage is to just hammer all... The, the congregation on why you should get off your feet and go do something for the kingdom of God. But that's not really where this passage goes in the end. And when I asked Chris to read the passage, I only had him read through verse 23 because the next set of verses after that, which I printed in your bulletin, will come to tell this obscure story of uh, God stopping Moses and his wife and his kids on the way and, and, and threatening to put somebody to death if Moses' children aren't circumcised. And as I studied this more and came to it, I realized that there's something that is a, a, a central interpretive key to, to this whole passage that comes up in that section. So we are going to read that in a minute, but I didn't want us to get there because it's a little bit distracting. I know everybody's reading ahead now, and that's fine if you want to read ahead. But let's just work our way through this passage and see what God is doing. And start with the objections and then work our way up to this troubling revelation. I don't know if you picked up on it, but all the firstborn sons that are going on. Israel is God's firstborn son. He says, let my son go that they may serve me. And then Pharaoh, I will kill your firstborn son if you don't let my people go. And then Moses' firstborn son comes into play with the story of uh, God meeting him and Zipporah, his wife, on the, on the road there. Before we start with the objections, remember what our three key themes of the book of Exodus are. Because each week, those are going to come up a little bit more, and we're going to see a little bit more of who God is and what he's done for us. And those three key themes, I've summarized down to one word each, they're freedom. As for freedom that Christ has set us free, is for freedom that God rescues the Israelites out of Egypt and takes them. It's not just a spiritual freedom, that is a truth and a greater truth, but there is a physical freedom that God works for the Israelites when he rescues them out of Egypt and delivers them out of bondage of slavery. And he's concerned for their well-being, even though, even though they have been in this situation for hundreds of years. Second one is worship, and worship matters. And that when God rescues them, he's always rescuing them for a purpose. He says, 
look, you're, you're going to worship something. When I free you, you're going to be prone to worship these other gods of the other nations. You're going to want to go back even to Egypt. You're going to, you're going to want... But when God says through Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go, notice that every time he says that, he follows it with a phrase like you see in this one, so that, so that we might go out in the wilderness and worship our God. There's always a purpose for the freedom, and that's why uh, Moses ends, or God through Moses, ends the book of Exodus with extensive chapters on instructions on how to worship. The third one being our heart's affection. Affection. I didn't realize this until I started studying it more and more in the center center theme of the affection. <laughs> but over and over, God is talking about the condition of Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh's heart was a very important thing in Pharaoh's time. You see, Pharaoh's heart was the center of the universe as far as the Egyptians were concerned. And for that matter, as far as the Israelites were concerned, because what Pharaoh did impacting all of Israel being their slaves. The heart in Egyptian culture was the center of a person. The heart of the gods, like the sun god Ra and other gods in Egypt, directed the course of affairs for the nation. Pharaoh was considered a god. And so his heart directed the nation. And when his heart is hard, it's bad for the people, particularly the people of Israel. He asked the question, was this fair that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart? But you see throughout the whole story of Exodus, it goes back and forth that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and then Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And you realize that it's not an either or. Logic breaks down when we come to the condition of our hearts and God has not called us to be puppets or made us to be puppets that he controls, but he gives us a free will, but it is never outside of his sovereign control. And the great truth of Scripture says that we are unable to soften our own hearts to God or to other people around us unless God comes in and carves away the hardness in our own hearts. And that comes up over and over again in the story of Exodus where we see not just Pharaoh's heart being hardened, but the people of Israel, when they go in the wilderness, they harden their hearts. And this comes up throughout the story of Exodus and then throughout the Scriptures and even the writer of Hebrews is saying, Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts as the Israelites did in the wilderness. And the call is for us to have an affection for God that, that, that we recognize that our, our calling as Christians needs to be focused, needs to be focused on the Word of God. And look, I wouldn't preach from this passage if our calling didn't need to be focused on the Word of God, this is an easy passage to skip over because it's a difficult passage, especially when you get to this, uh, this talk of, that, that I didn't read yet. 
but our focus is on the Word of God because in the Word of God, the real God, the actual God is revealed to us as human beings in a miraculous way. And if we worship anything but the real God and in the way the real God has told us to, we've, we, we miss the mark. We will be creating our own idols, our own gods. But never in Scripture, never with God working with His people, does our knowledge of Scripture and our knowledge of God get separated from the affection of God for His people and the affection He calls His people to respond to Him with? Unless, of course, the people are in sin. Unless, of course, the people are worshiping their own God, creating their own ways, doing their own thing. And that, Paul says, is a knowledge that is puffed up. It's like a head that is inflated. Sometimes we play this game of, uh, uh, of uh, throwing, burrito, uh, I just forgot, throwing burritos out here with this, these giant inflated burritos. Throw, throw burrito. Thank you, Henry. It's like our head is this giant throw, throw, inflated burrito that's about this big when our hands and our feet and our body are, are, are tiny. They're, they're un, in a, incapable of, of doing any good for the kingdom of God, any good for one another, any good ultimately for our lives. Freedom, worship, and affection are central to this. And this, this is what God is equipping Moses who has all kinds of great training. The first 40 years of his life were spent with the best teachers and the best tutors and the best leaders in the country as, as a high-ranking official in Pharaoh's household we've talked about. He has the best Harvard education and experience commanding armies and, and, and workforces and everything else. And then God sends him out into the wilderness. And for 40 years, he is there and he gets married in the wilderness and he works as a shepherd for Jethro, who he, he mentions here, he says, he goes to his father-in-law Jethro, can I go back? Will you give me permission? For 40 years, he's having this, this new experience. We've talked about how shepherds, shepherds make good leaders some of the time, oftentimes. If they're good shepherds and they know how to care for the sheep. But all of Moses' resume is, is for naught compared to the central equipping work that God does for Moses. He says, I am going to give you the words that you need to speak. The Apostle Paul says something similar in the New Testament saying, you know, look, I, I'm not particularly eloquent. There are other better speakers than I am. But what's grabbed Paul and what eventually grabs Moses is the affection of the heart, transformation, a new, a new life, and a new affection that allows him to love God and to see the, the hurt of his people and respond in a powerful way to them. Sometimes we need to hear God's assuring voice over and over and in new ways and challenged. God gets angry, but he still uses Moses.
Moses says, I'm not eloquent. And then he just says, send somebody else. And from this we can see that God chooses to use people oftentimes that don't want to go and don't feel equipped to go. And if this is where you feel you are, then these words are for you as well. It doesn't mean that you have to go to do something that that you feel like you need to do. That doesn't necessarily affirm God's calling, but sometimes God comes to you and very clearly makes known, I've called you to this. Maybe some of the best examples are when we're called to a particular work by other people and, and, and pastors have this. People are lay hands on you. You are called to this work and you can't just run from it. You can't escape it. You can't just choose to go someplace else. And the structure of government that we've set up The structure of government that we have set up in, in, in our church, which is the Presbyterian Church, Presbyterian Church in America, the particular denomination, is based on the biblical principle that if God has called you to this work, you can't just run off without the people who called you to that agreeing that it's time for you to go. A similar application can be found in our marriages. What God has brought together, the scripture says, let no man put asunder let no man separate including the two that are involved in the marriage what God has called together in that marriage you just can't decide I'm going to go do something else it's a calling that comes from God God has given us the gift of marriage he's defined it he's described it he's he's over and over used as an illustration of who we are and that's the third particular aspect if you are called to the church to the kingdom of God if you have made commitments to the church and taken vows and said I am a member of the church you can't just run off you can't just say I'm, I'm done with this now there are times where abuse happens in a church and hopefully churches that you're involved with and hopefully our church has structures like the presbytery where if a church goes in the wrong direction you have people to bring those concerns to call the church back and just as a matter of practice if somebody wants to change from one church to another as a part of our congregation we we aren't going to force you to stay here and there are many times where there are needs to go to other churches and uh, and and we've been faithful to do that we, we it's not like the marriage vow where where um where you're called really to to stay in that and and uh, uh apart from reasons biblical reasons to divorce you know we're going to really encourage you to stay in that and work with you it's different with church membership but even still the calling the calling is there and if you feel like you can just run from god come back to the story of moses and hear his plea to God, send somebody else. And you can even say those words to God. Will you use somebody else and see if God doesn't come and answer you and give you what you need? Isn't it fascinating to see how God responds? How God responds to the, what seems like this, this awful 
statement. Will you just send somebody else? And it says the, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. But what does God do in his anger? He doesn't just fly off the handle and say, get out of here and come back when you're ready to do it. No, he, he immediately says, look, isn't that Aaron, your brother? He's a, a Levite. He can speak well. If your concern is that you don't speak well, I'm going to give you what you need to go and do this task. I'm going to put words in your mouth. I'm going to put words in your mouth for him. I'm going to use his mouth to guide the people. Now, it's interesting to see that this whole thing of Aaron and Moses speaking eventually kind of works his way out in some weird ways because Moses kind of takes reins and says, I'm going to speak here. It doesn't always go well for me. Probably should have let Aaron speak more. But God says to Moses, I'm going to give you Aaron. I'm going to give you what you need as a sign of what you need. Has God given you signs that he's called you something in particular? Comic strip BC is a little bit out of date and probably most of you don't know it anymore, but it it was written by a Christian who wasn't explicitly Christian in all of his comic strips, but memorably he had one that uh, the, the main character is is saying he's a, a caveman. All the characters are cavemen. He says, God, give me a sign. And the next strip has a big marquee coming down saying something like, I am here. Sometimes the signs aren't all that obvious, but sometimes the signs are very obvious. And I'll share with you sometimes some of the obvious signs that I've received, particularly to specific answers to prayer associated with planning this church. I want you to see a second thing in this calling of Moses. And we don't have to assume, in fact, we probably shouldn't assume that Moses is just making excuses. He probably isn't all that eloquent of speech. He might even have a speech impediment. And one of the most powerful stories that I've heard connected with this story, a story told by a pastor who was sitting as a young man under the work of another pastor, who was having a child, Life was due was before cell phones and all that other communication. And one day, this younger pastor in training is is either leading worship or teaching, and he notices the senior pastor isn't there that night, and so he continues on. He goes on with his work, and then eventually later, that senior pastor comes in and sits at the back of the church, and, and he knows knows he's having the baby, assumes that the reason he didn't show up was because he had to take his wife to the hospital to have the baby, goes over to congratulate him on having the baby, and the man is downcast in tears. And he asked him, why are you in tears? Did you not have your baby? And he said, yes, I had, we had our baby, but the baby has Down syndrome. 
and he was distraught. And this young man who goes on to become a famous pastor turned with this senior pastor to the story of Exodus 4 and he says, is it not God who gives Is it not God who gives both the man's mouth and who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? You have been given and trusted a great gift to care for this child. And the senior pastor, knowing the wisdom of this younger pastor, goes back to his wife and shares this passage as well and sees the hope of this calling knowing that our suffering has a reason as we prayed earlier the difficulties we face in life are from God and he is not out of control when these things happen and that's a great comfort the greatest of comforts to us in our lives Singer Rich Mullins has a great song that talks about the advice that he gets from the world around him. Say, just follow your heart. Just follow your nose. Follow your desires and you'll be pursuing the right things and have all of your wants, he says, but the father of hearts and the maker of noses, he's the one that I have chosen. He is the one, if we corrected his theology a little bit, who has chosen us. And he's the one who's made us and given us all of these other things. And we can know that he does it for a purpose and that he was, he will be faithful to use us and even to use these other people. My mentor, Dick Kaufman, taught me he has a grandson who has both Down syndrome and hemophilia of the great powerful leadership that this grandson possesses because in part you can see the love that he brings into a room and how he's so unassuming and just loving other people. But the, the impact that this young person who is growing now has with even those disabilities is profound and it affirms what Jesus says over and over. Look, you look to the powerful to be able to do these things. His disciples are coming to him, asking him for the right and left hand of seat of power. And he says, you ask for something you don't know, but the least will be greatest in the kingdom of God and the greatest will be least. And you look at some of the leaders who are most eloquent of speech in all of the world, even today that we see falling over over and over and you say God will you just make me faithful and trust in your word to have a deep affection for you and that is the maker of hearts the maker of noses the father of hearts that's our calling that's who we it, it paints a picture even for my own brother a younger brother who has down syndrome he's five years younger than me and I love to picture what he will be like in heaven where he is a fullness of a human being without any chromosomal uh, disorders or, 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 or imperfections, but the fullness of a human being. I wonder what he will look like and what he will speak like and how beautiful he will be.
God calls Moses. He calls us in our difficulties, our sufferings, and he is faithful to use us. Now, I want you to look down in this passage a little bit. And, you know, Moses goes back now with this courage and he says to his father-in-law, Jethro, will you allow me to go back? And Jethro gives him this blessing. Now, Jethro is a priest of Midian, similar to another priest of Midian who is serving the real God. Presumably, uh, Jethro pres- serves the, uh, the God of the Israelites, God of Abraham, Jacob, uh, Isaac, and Jacob as well. He gives him the blessing, and then Moses packs up his stuff. Many of you know we're about to move. Our landlords are selling our house. We're not sure where we're going to move to yet. Packs up his stuff, his family, his wife, Zipporah, and his, his at least two sons with him. And we don't know if there are other children. And, and they go on their way. And they, they go on their way, and, and, and God says to, to Moses, look, I want you to show these signs that, that we talked about before to the people first, and then you're going to show them to Moses. Show them all, because they need help seeing, just like I gave you help at responding to your five questions. Show all three signs, and we'll talk about that later. But then he gives this, this instruction. He says, he, this, this teaching, he says, thus says the Lord, I'm in verse 22, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. He says, let my son go that they may serve me. Let them go that they might go and worship me. We're seeing already through this, even in the burning bush, the angel of the Lord, some references also to Jesus, who is God's firstborn son. He was always and will ever for more be, but he's called the firstborn son so that we can understand something of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and the inheritance that God the Son receives from God the Father. And that inheritance is something that he shares with his people. And Israel is this people. And and, and in Galatians, Paul says, the church is the Israel of God. And so we're inheritors with the firstborn son who is Jesus and Israel is my firstborn son and all of these things theologically are coming together and then and then we didn't read this earlier it says verse 24 at a lodging place on the way and this is printed in your bulletin by the way if you want to read along or on your phones or, or in a bible a paper bible at a lodging place on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death and then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses's feet with it and said surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me so he let him alone and it was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision and and, and if you're not a Christian you probably come to here and you say why do why do Christians, why does the Bible talk so much about circumcision? Old Testament and New Testament too, so much about it. And you say, this is even worse, a bridegroom of blood, and they're touching feet with the blood of, of it, and what's going on here? And, and I, I really was not excited about getting into this, because honestly, it's, 
Here's what the Hebrew, uh, the Jewish scholar, biblical scholar, he's a professor uh, up at uh, Berkeley, I believe. Robert Alter says in his translation and commentary about, he says about this passage, this elliptic episode is the most enigmatic of all of Exodus. Now that's a beautiful alliteration. Hear how many E's are going on there? This elliptic episode is the most enigmatic in all of Exodus. And look, when you come to passages like this, usually the Jewish scholars, rabbis over the course of millennium have come up with some type of explanation for this that uh, that explains it. But I get from Alter that, that there is not a consistent explanation of what this means, even within the Jewish tradition, much less in the Christian tradition. And I don't want to presume to know everything here, but I do want us to see some ties in the text. And then you can make some of your own conclusions about this. And the first thing is this. Moses has to circumcise his sons, his two sons probably on the way, particularly the the firstborn son may be in mind here. And there's something fascinating going on when God has just threatened to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son if he doesn't listen to him. And now God is meeting just a short time later Moses and his wife and threatening to kill their sons or Moses himself or their firstborn son or somebody. It's not clear in the text, by the way. If you'll notice, the text uses the word him a lot because Moses isn't named. uh, His sons aren't named. Obviously, the sons are the ones being circumcised, but it's a question of who's being threatened to be killed. And most of the time we think, oh, it's Moses being threatened to be killed, but it's very consistent with the Hebrew, very likely, in fact, even more probably so that his son is being threatened and is consistent that God is concerned that Moses hasn't done the one thing needed to mark his son as a sign with the sign of the covenant of God. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this, you can go back to Genesis chapter 17. And there, God is talking to Abraham. And Abraham now is 99 years old, and his wife Sarah is 90. And they've they've already had the son through Hagar we talked about earlier. And the, the book of Galatians talks about this quite a bit. We read that earlier as well. Concerned with, is it the son of Hagar and Abraham or is it the son of Sarah and Abraham? And God says, no, I've given you a promise. You are going to have a child with Sarah. And you need to believe that promise. If you keep pursuing this other thing that you did by your own hand, it won't, it won't work. You have to hear my promise, believe my promise says in Genesis 15, God believed, Abraham believed God and it was counted as, to him as righteousness. And here God gives them a new sign. And that is that by circumcising the male children, you were saying, I trust 
God's promises not only for me, but for my whole family. And so isn't it interesting that Moses been raised as an Egyptian, probably wouldn't have been circumcised as a child then. He comes to appreciate his Hebrew upbringing. Actually, I take that back. Having uh, been born into the... Moses was probably circumcised. That wasn't my main point. Probably circumcised because he was born and, and parents would have circumcised him. The, the main point is that, that Moses knows the importance of circumcision, and yet for some reason his own sons are not circumcised. Why would this be? Why would this be? We don't know the full reason, but we do know this. God is saying, look, you can't presume on my promises for your own life and your own family if you're not willing to follow my instructions. There's a fascinating story about an ancient uh, uh, um, father of the church who waited to be baptized himself, even though he was a pastor for years, decades, waited to be baptized till the end of his life because he was afraid that he might sin during his life and his baptism lose its effectiveness. And it's a picture of what Moses may be doing here where he misses the point of what baptism communicates to us. Baptism communicates to us that we are in the covenant community not by our own doing, but by something that God has done for us. And it is a tangible sign that we do that says, I believe. We do this when we take the Lord's Supper every week. We do it one time with baptism when we come into the kingdom. As the Presbyterian Church, we encourage parents to baptize their infant children because the tie of baptism is so close to that with circumcision. Baptism replaces circumcision as this sign of children born into the covenant family and we look back to this example of Moses and we say why are you not saying tangibly with your actions I believe James says something similar he says look if you go on sinning you're saying by your actions I don't believe our actions confirm our belief it doesn't say that we're done with all sin we'll never sin again but they say especially when our lives are gradually transformed more and more after Christ's likeness i believe i believe and moses had not said to his family i believe not sure what it means the bridegroom of blood it probably is a euphemism hebrew is full of euphemisms for things a euphemism for circumcision but what does it mean it probably means that god is saying to us that he is our bridegroom of blood when we are in his assembly his church the israel of god marked out as members of this community. And you know what circumcision points ultimately to? It's pointing to the fact that when we try to win God's favor and do enough good things that we we, we feel like God is in our debt and that, that we deserve something, we're reminded over and over of, Mo, of Abraham prior to that circumcision 
trying to solve God's problems when God had promised, I'm going to solve your promise, your problem through my promise. And that promise ultimately is fulfilled because Jesus' own blood is shed for us. The bridegroom of blood is Jesus himself. His sacrifice, his blood is sufficient to cover us when we're baptized. We're baptized with him in his death, it says. His death symbolized by that blood. When we're taking the Lord's Supper, we we drink the wine because it symbolizes his blood. The, the, the writer Moses, when he's writing Leviticus and God's giving him instructions, he says the life of something is in the blood. You receive life because of blood. And we aren't offering continuing sacrifices now because that sacrifices has been, sacrifice has been offered and fulfilled. But God needed to communicate to the Israelite people just like he needs to communicate to us that Jesus' blood is important. It's, it matters. It's, it's the most important thing. It's a, the blood that we need to bring us healing. The call on our life may not be to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. The call on our lives may not be to be a great evangelist, whether we're eloquent of speech or not. The call on our lives may not be to be a pastor. It may not be to be a business leader. It may not be to be a government official, elected official. But the call in your life is to know the love that Christ has shown to you by dying for your sins so that you could be forgiven for them. And we've talked about the need for that. Every one of us needs it just as Moses' children needed it and Moses needed to be covered by that blood. So we need to be covered by the blood of Christ or else our destiny is death. The death of the firstborn son. It's not a wickedness. It's a crime. It's a punishment fitting the crime. If Israel will continue to kill God's firstborn son, the equivalent, the fair retribution, is that Egypt would lose its firstborn son. It's not a genocide that God is creating here. It is a, it is a fair punishment for the crime. And, and if we dig into the criminal justice system, we realize that even though we may be against the death penalty, because we aren't able to see as God is able to see and be completely confident that somebody is guilty, we still inherently, all of us, understand the necessity of crimes being punished, of needing to pay a debt that's owed. If you steal, you should pay it back. But the debt that we owe to God and our sin is one that we can never pay back, and that's why Christ has died for us, that we would have the debt fully paid. Now I share a number of New Testament metaphors with you here today that probably I could unpack more, but I want you to see how those New Testament metaphors come so centrally from from this beautiful passage of Exodus. I still wouldn't choose to preach this passage just if we weren't going through the scripture verse by verse. 
But isn't it a beautiful passage when we see Jesus at work through Moses and through his blood? I hope you have a little bit of a glimpse of the importance of this passage now. Let's, uh, let's pray to close. Jesus, you are strong over all of your creation. And you are mighty in battle to conquer our greatest foe, our enemy, and that is death itself, the sin that brought death and then the death that ensued. And you have conquered it victoriously, raising from the dead so that we can have new life by the power of your blood. Jesus, will you help us to live into that great calling more and more every day as we see and understand your beauty more and more and the beauty that you have created us in after your own image and that you are at work building, having restored it by calling us holy and continuing to work in us to transform our lives. We ask this in your powerful name. Amen.